Welcome to season two of the 3 to 10 project. Two white cisgender males who have been friends for over 25 years, exploring race, gender, and education by talking through the intersection of our identities with our experience, as well as what we are reading, listening to, and thinking about. And most importantly, considering how to show up moving forward. The 3 to 10 project reflects our long-term commitment, three to 10 years of working together to build community and culture, inspired by author Resma Menikum. You can learn more about Resma and find a link to the podcast that inspired us on our website. I'm Mark. I'm Reed. This season, we're framing each episode around an essential question. Sometimes we may uncover answers, Usually we'll end up with even more questions. And as we move to hold ourselves accountable, we'll wrap up every discussion by setting specific intentions for action. How will we be moved to act and what will we do? This is season two, episode two, entitled, Why Are People Afraid to Talk About Race in Schools? Recorded September 25th, 2021. We hope you enjoy. Good morning, Mark. Morning, Reed. We are well into September here. Been a little gap since our last conversation, but I'm excited to chat. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, we've decided to kind of give a moment when we start each time to to echo back to our last conversation. So, you want to talk about anything that's gone on with you since we last talked? I, you know, I have something going on um, at work that I think aligned with what the intentions were, um, you know, working on developing or kind of transitioning to what we might want to call a shared leadership model. And we have a you know, small team, five people, one person on the team really kind of facilitating our work and growth in this area. And I would just say that we are doing it. It's hard in the sense that I think for everyone, it's not always so straightforward what it means to do shared leadership or what, by kind of collectively and individually, but I'll just kind of name the most important thing that's happened lately is a decision to begin naming where power comes into decision-making. And um, we're going to start slowly with a very specific part of our week where we have team meetings and at the end of each team we do that once a week at the end of the team meeting reflecting back on okay what decisions and interactions had power at play and kind of just naming it um the idea here is that we can kind of pretend that we're sharing power, 
and the, on paper it could look like we are. But there's definitely positional power and maybe power and identity as well that just plays out. And we want to start uncovering that. Um, so I'm excited to do that. And um, getting to that place has taken several conversations, but I'm excited for trying that out. Yeah, there you go. Well, I know that's not what we're focusing on today, but I will comment that that question of sort of power within an organization and positional power, and even when it looks like there's positional power, but for other reasons, it's not really, you know, it doesn't play out as it looks. That's exactly what came up in a staff meeting within my organization yesterday. We're having some similar conversations. Um, I Actually, I bet they're quite different from, from your conversations in our organization, but very related. And actually you having brought that up uh, last time we talked really gave me a good lens as I was listening to yesterday's um, staff meeting. And so actually I can say thank you for that because it just, I, I wouldn't have been as attuned to that, um, to that issue if we hadn't had that conversation last time. So thanks. Um, yeah, great. Maybe that'll be a future conversation. How things go for you? Yeah. So when we left off last time, I really tried to get specific about some things I was going to do around this issue in our town where there's an affordable housing uh, debate going on uh, about whether to build a unit. So you pushed me to get specific. And so I did do a few things. Um, one is like I, I ended up really listening back to some prior council meetings on this topic. And then I went and spoke at the town council where they had a public hearing and there were, I don't know, maybe over 50 people in attendance. Um, I think something like 27, 28 people spoke um, and, and, and I did. And it was interesting to be there, you know, over an hour of public comment. And, um, you know, I think I have to say that the communities from that perspective, maybe more divided than I even thought. I mean, the more speakers were uh, for the, the development than against, but by kind of a close margin. And a cool thing that happened at the end, as I was just taking some notes, as it was wrapping up, a woman came and tapped me on the shoulder and handed me um, a flyer. And she's actually coordinating an organized effort to support the development and uh, offered to get together with me um, and talk. So I've emailed her. We haven't talked yet, but I'm realizing that in order actually th th to move forward with this development, which I increasingly think is just really good for the community and allowing other people to come into our community is going to probably take real organization because it's about changing the status quo, which just doesn't happen. And so I'm going to find out kind of like, what are the actual efforts that are getting organized to try to really support and move that forward? So as it moves forward, I'll let you know, but um, it's uh, been been interesting to get deeper than I usually get in terms of just watching these things sort of from afar. Cool. I'm definitely curious to hear how that goes. And I kind of what's coming up for me is just noticing that there's an importance and maybe a power to stepping in and stepping up into spaces um, that lead to, you know, unintended consequences. Uh, like you wouldn't have connected with that group 
if you didn't go to that and speak. And so we'll see what happens, but that might just be the beginning of what might be more involvement in that in a very tangible way. So it just kind of speaks to the importance of putting, putting yourself in a space where you can connect with others. Yeah, I agree. So let's launch into today's discussion. And I'm really coming at this because I actually want, want a thought partner. I need some help from you. So I think that the question that I'd love us to work around today is essentially, why are people afraid to talk about race in schools? And we've touched on this in different ways, but in my job, I'm working in schools, um, not always overtly uh, around racial issues, but certainly issues of equity and race, even in the whitest schools, you know, in Maine, for example, where I live, um, are, are always connected. These, these issues are connected. And then, of course, we've sort of had this national conversation that exploded since the murder of George Floyd. So um, I am in situations every day where either explicitly I hear teachers or even leaders say that, geez, I, I think we should be talking about these things, but I'm worried. Or I, I get that undercurrent where people are clearly avoiding things. And then I'm constantly watching um, school board meetings. And I have not watched a school board meeting or school committee meeting in the last six months from multiple districts that I'm connected with in which there hasn't been a public comment um, with someone pushing back against, against critical race theory or against um, even social emotional learning or against general concepts of, of equity. And so I'm really, to me, I think there's a fear. I'm, I'm, I'm latching onto this idea that people are afraid of something to be coming out, even in very white schools that are not doing highly progressive things and saying like these things, which are unclear sometimes what they're even talking about, um, you know, shouldn't be part of the school system. So in my mind, I'm looking at it and saying, people are afraid to talk about race in schools, you know, white people in predominantly white communities seem especially afraid to talk about this um, or have it talked about with their kids. And I'm trying to figure out why, what do you think? Well, I have a very, specific answer and based on a very recent experience. So the um, school board, you know, school committee I'm on recently, well, you know, the school district along with three other districts that feed it hired a director of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we've talked about that. That person has been working now for several months and is going to present findings of her initial gather, you know, listening to the larger community in a couple weeks. What's going to spin out of that is a kind of a, what they're calling a superintendent's work group or yeah, working group or working committee. So it's not a school committee committee, but it's something superintendent is forming. But three school committee members will serve on it, and I'm one of them. And we had a meeting, just us, the superintendent, and those school committee members to 
just uh, talk through, you know, the goals of this group and where we're all at and so on. It was a refreshingly candid conversation between people who had differing opinions, but also open to listening. And and uh, what one of the topics discussed was the lack of conversation in classrooms around complex issues such as race. And what became very clear was that teachers are scared because there will be backlash from parents right away and, you know, probably through social media. So the teachers, or the assumption here is, the teachers are simply like, why would I do this if people are going to come at me right away and pretty aggressively, at least on social media? I don't want that. So that's one thing. And the second was that um, the assumption that the teachers really don't know how to facilitate the complex conversations well. Like, it takes skill. So it takes courage, and it takes skill. And maybe both of those things, again, I'm making these big generalizations and assumptions, but both of those things are challenging for, you know, the small town, which we are in, I'm not saying that in a negative way, you know, homogeneous areas, you know, high school math teacher, let's say, or whatever. So, yeah, I'm curious what you think about that, if that makes sense. I've seen the same thing in school after school, where even well-intentioned teachers are worried. So I I think this is actually a great thing. I hadn't even been thinking about this too much, but that the people who would actually be doing the work, who sometimes are often accused of doing really radical, (laughs) you know, the term socialist, Marxist gets thrown around, you know, woke kind of things actually are are often uh, both feeling uh, afraid and ill-prepared. And, you know, I, I talked to some teachers at a middle school that I worked with last year who were very eager to felt, I guess I would say this, they felt a responsibility based on just what they saw going on in society, their own views, and the fact that they felt like they were doing a disservice to their kids, but they felt very explicitly that they didn't have support from the administration of the district or the school. Not that they felt like those people didn't think conversations could happen, but that the leadership was also afraid of that pushback that you're talking about. And the leadership of the schools are also often feeling ill-prepared for how to do that. And the efforts to educate, like when, you know, you guys have got a, a DEI coordinator now in that district. Like that's a nice step forward. Um, but there are schools that aren't even at that point. And there's pushback about, um, you know, trying to get professional expertise from outside because even that move uh, seems, seems scary to, to people. Um, the other quick thing I'll say that that's making me think of is, is we did listen to this um, 
an, another great episode of Code Switch called The Folk Devil Made Me Do It. And one of the anecdotes they talked about is how these sort of recurring, um, they use the term moral panic, which actually is a sociological term I didn't know, um, of, of concerns over things being done to kids. And they talked about, you know, outrage over a textbook in the 30s that was not making America out to be the perfect city on the hill and made exactly your point in that podcast, I think, Mark, that what the both the, the book publishers and the s- school districts just decided, like, it's not worth it's not worth the fight. We're just going to not um, try to push on these issues because we just don't think that it's worth the, the backlash we get. So let me jump in with something. So I think what we're saying is there's a path of least resistance that's very clear in the situation. And there's potentially a real, like, you know, you brought up fear. So kind of on the opposite side of fear is courage. You know, if you have fear, you need courage to move forward. And maybe a lack of courage, but I want to I wanna back out on that because that's really easy to label and say, you're not showing courage, you're not being courageous, and that seems like a stance I want to be really careful about. Um, but what's coming up for me is a couple of things that maybe are tangible ideas to, to you know, help in this space. Number one is, obviously, if the leadership of whatever, it's either the principal, superintendent, and or the school board can get ahead and lead, certainly will make it easier for teachers. Because if they feel like someone has their back, if they feel like someone is setting an example, they're gonna be more willing to step up. So that's number one. But I acknowledge that that takes that, even getting that may be hard. Number two would be training. That some people might be like, I'm just not sure how to do this in a way that's going to be productive in the classroom. Maybe there's fear around that, you know, that, so that, you know, they're always training for facilitating conversations and so on. Number three, though, I'm wondering about this, and this is really an authentic question for you to think you have more information around this, which is... Do the districts, you know, the people in the districts at all these levels actually understand what's okay and not okay? I wonder, and we can tie it back to this moral panic, if there's an assumption that I can't do something because actually I'm not supposed to, it's wrong to do, defined by recent or past legislation or rules or whatever, and that if people are actually educated, in fact, you in fact can and should and are expected to teach this. In fact, here it is in the standard. Here's the history standard. Here's the communication standard about critical thinking, about you know certain things in learning about history or literature, whatever it is, 
can that help mitigate some of the fear? Because just asking people, I guess this is what's coming up for me. It's really easy to say you just need to be more courageous. But that seems just not fair and not useful. I guess I I think the the conversation about, you know, courageousness, moral courage is good to have with people through all of this and to acknowledge that it might take some courage. But you're right. That's not it's just like telling a kid pay attention. Right. Like what what does that mean? Um, So I think getting tangible and I, I love this idea of saying there are lots of ways to have deep conversations with kids. If we look at the social studies standards, I mean, if you're going to talk about history in America, I do not see how you don't talk about race, right? Um, if you want to talk about redlining, if you want to talk about, um, you know, Jim Crow, you know, those are, those are just conversations about history and how do we have those in a way that's, that's authentic and that are, that are actually accurate. And then you're getting it like transferable skills, like, you know, critical thinking, right. And, and even communication, like how, you know, teachers are expected to be teaching those things by statute, actually in, in, in most of the new England States. And so what do those, you know, how can we then use those opportunities as ways to look at a host of topics? One way to approach this in schools is to do like curriculum audits. Like let's, let's understand what is being taught and why, what are our materials? So that is an approach that I think, you know, I know that I'm starting to use with, um, you know, in some of the work that I'm doing and we can say, this isn't about, you know, this isn't about race. This is about looking at our curriculum, making sure we're in alignment with the state standards and what's expected, and also making sure that we are giving the the, the kids the opportunity to have the richest view of what has happened in the past and how it plays out today. Yeah, I just kind of wonder how much, again, going back to the moral panic uh, framework, how much the fear is this kind of extrapolation of things we hear in the news or social media that actually isn't true, especially in the states we live in. Meaning, we, we read and hear of real legislation getting passed in other states. At least I don't think it's happened in Maine. I know it hasn't happened here in Massachusetts. And maybe people are like, well, that... I, this, I can't do this. They're, they're saying we can't. When in fact, the, that's like part of the panic. <laughs> Wait a minute. Okay, let's look at the, like bringing people to reality of what's really happening. What are the real conditions we're in? The real condition includes, hey, if you teach something that, some, that a parent doesn't like or want their kid to know, like anti-racism, as an example, they may call you out on social media. That is real. They may come to a school committee meeting and say something about you. That is real. But what's also real is your textbook talks about this, or the standard talks about this, or there's precedent in the state to talk about this. And in fact, you're expected to teach this idea or this way 
of thinking critically and examining different sides of an issue and so on. I, I just want to share a quick anecdote that uh, part of this little school committee meeting I had, which was really hopeful in some way. I'm sitting with people that I'm assuming have different stances, politically, ideologically, and maybe about education too. And in the conversation, what surfaced was an interest for all of us that there's opportunity for our children to engage in rich dialogue facilitated by a competent adult around complex issues. We all acknowledged that's important. And they even brought up an issue that I, without getting into a lot of detail, someone I knew had raised a concern, think about like a debate club topic about like, you know, kneeling for the flag. And basically like didn't even want that to be a topic debated. And when I brought that up to this group, I, my sense was there was no hesitancy about, they might not all agree with the position of kneeling at the, at the uh, anthem, but they seem to agree it's worth talking about openly. I was like, okay, that's great. That's the start of what's necessary for real civil dialogue. We don't have a lot of time for this, but I want to just ask a question that could be an entire discussion. I want to ask a different angle on this same question, and we could spend a lot more time on it. But, you know, you're talking about coming together and like finding common ground. But we've I appreciate we've been talking about, say, like the teachers and the people within the system and and what are they afraid of? I, I would like your thoughts on what about the people sort of on the extreme end who are the ones, you know, posting on social media, coming to school boards, saying CRT has no place in schools. You're trying to divide us. Um, the, th- which I think is a, a minority in some ways, but very vocal. What do you think those people are really afraid of? Like, why is, I see these people that, have, that I don't think have ever come to a school board meeting before necessarily sitting through hours of random minutiae to get their three minutes of public comment. What's motivating that? Like, what are they afraid of for their kids? I, I'll think on this, but my gut reaction to that question is, why are we spending time on that? that not just you and I, but why this is actually maybe one of the issues that could be addressed is, hey, what is the reality? You know, I don't know if you remember when we used to work together, I used the term evidencing. That was this idea that I felt that often in schools, people would make sweeping comments frequently with very little data. And so a couple kids are misbehaving or whatever, and the school's out of control because that was the tangible experience that impacted the person. And that's a real human phenomenon. Yeah, that, that is the availability bias, right? Like we right, are biased towards the thing that we can call to mind quickly. 
Yeah, it's a real thing. Okay, thank you. And I know Jana would be all, and she's all into biases right now. And yeah, so, all right, so, get, like, we got to get away from that. Like, we need to challenge it. It's like, almost maybe flip it and say, yeah, those people are mad. They're fearful. And there are two of them. <laughs> you know, like, let's move on. What are we doing for the people, the, the rest of us? Instead of trying to placate or figure out or address the concerns of the people that have figured out how to use the microphone or the keypad, um, I really wonder, and I guess I would challenge you in this next time period to explore that. How much in your interactions with teachers and school leaders, school committees, are people focused on a small number of people because of availability bias? And can you shift them away from that to what is real, which is that most people in the system want opportunities for genuine dialogue, growth, and learning? Thank you. And I got, I think I have two pretty concrete things that I'm going to be working on just as a result of this conversation. One, I think what you said is a great lens as I'm working with some very specific schools, maybe even thinking about our own district where we live, where my son attends, um, is like, what's the reality of problems that are being created or raised on any given basis at any given day, like in any classroom or, or, you know, in any setting versus just the fear of that. And I think like diving into that a little bit with some school leaders could be a really interesting conversation that might allow us some, some roads forward. The other thing is really love this idea about let's try to get tangible about what we're supposed to be teaching. Like what's been agreed upon that, well, forget about teaching. What's been agreed upon about the things that kids should be learning and experiencing in schools. And Lord knows we have long lists. And um, every district that I work with has done extensive work trying to define that and continuing to refine that. So starting with that as a way to think about um, we're not having certain conversations for the sake of conversations. We have responsibilities and let's get clear about how what we've already been asked to help kids learn uh, intertwines with some of this work that we maybe our moral courage tells us we should be moving forward with. So that's my, those are the things I'll be working on as a result of this. So thank you. I think I could do the same thing. Um, in definitely in the school committee role of just kind of paying attention to where availability bias is playing out, questioning it, and asking questions, like kind of doing some digging. All right, what have we agreed to here in this town about what we teach? And I, that conversation has not happened that I've been part of, but I'd love to begin it. Um, so, yeah, I think we have some work for ourselves. <laughs> That's good. I, I, I wouldn't want to leave these conversations with nothing to do. So thank you. <laughs> Wrapping up the 
an easy 10 soon and uh, about two weeks to the pandemic version of the Boston Marathon in October. Um, yeah. So two weeks until the big marathon, the fall Boston Marathon, very odd. Uh, wrong, wrong time of year for it, but we'll be excited to that it's happening. I'm, I'm glad it is happening. And I've got a half marathon tomorrow. So, boy, it's really oh, yeah. Yep. Good luck. <laughs> Have a good thanks, weekend. Mark. Okay. Enjoy the rest of your run. Bye. And uh, thanks a lot for a good conversation. Bye. Thank you for listening to the 3 to 10 Project. You can find all episodes on our website and through a number of streaming apps, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Breaker, and Pocket Casts. Do you have a question you want us to wrestle with or a topic you'd like us to explore? Hey, would you like to be a guest on the show? You can email Reed directly at reeddire1, that's the numeral one, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you think these conversations could be valuable to others, please pass the podcast link along. Finally, thanks as always to Random Chiz for our season two theme music.